While You Were Folding, Episode 12, When a Child Has Special Needs, with Mary Lenneberg. Hi, I'm Catherine Boucher, and you're listening to While You Were Folding. This show is my weekly excuse to talk about my favorite things, marriage, parenting, faith, friendship, culture, what I'm reading and watching, and whatever else strikes my fancy. I've been a wife for 10 years and a mother for eight. I won't pretend to be an expert. I will introduce you to some amazing guests, ask a whole bunch of questions, invite you into the conversation, and encourage you to share what you heard while you were folding. Let's go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of another week. Thank you for the gift of the change of seasons today as I record this. This is the first official day of spring, but it still kind of feels like a winter day. We woke up with a little bit of snow around here, but we have the peaks of the grass turning green and some of the flowers are starting to bloom and the trees are starting to have little buds of leaves on them and I just love, I'm a total geek, I love the gift of living in the Northern Hemisphere where the liturgical calendar lines up so well with the seasons and what's happening in nature around us. So thank you for the gift of that, the gift of nature and the reflections that it gives us on what's happening in our faith right now as we approach the end of Lent and we enter into Holy Week next week. Please continue to be with us. Help us to have our hearts stretched, to pain us with the things that hurt you so that we can bring your love into the world the best that we can within our own lives, in our vocations, in our families. We pray these things through your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I had initially planned on doing like another regular week, weekly recap on what's going on around here and just give you a glimpse into what's going on with my family. But instead, when I was preparing to edit this episode, I got a total wink from God. I called these God winks. So I um like to plan this podcast out in advance as much as I can so that it doesn't become a stressor. I don't I want it to continue to feel like a hobby and not a part-time job. And so I schedule the guests weeks out in advance, sometimes months out. And when I scheduled this interview with Mary, Mary Lenneberg, our guest for today, I had no idea that this episode was going to release on March 21st. And some of you may already know that March 21st is World Down Syndrome Day. And if you'd like to know more about World Down Syndrome Day, you can visit their website. That's worlddownsyndromeday.org. And that website has all kinds of awesome information. That's going to be the home database where people can share all of their videos and stories. And it's really just a chance for all of us to get to see how the world would look different without the beautiful people around us that have Down syndrome and what awesome contributions they bring to our world. The reason why March 21st is World Down Syndrome Day is because Down syndrome occurs when there is a triplication when there are three of the 21st chromosome. So I thought instead of giving a weekly recap, since today 
the day that this podcast releases is World Down Syndrome Day, that I would share a little bit about the life of Dr. Jerome Lejeune. He was born in 1926 in a suburb of Paris, and he is considered the the father of modern genetics. He actually discovered the cause of Down syndrome in the year 1958. And as I just said, Down syndrome occurs when a child is born with three of their 21st chromosome, when there's a triplication, also known as a trisomy of the 21st chromosome. And so Dr. Lejeune discovered this in 1958. And shortly thereafter, he was dismayed because he had hoped that this scientific discovery would help advance the cure and the work in the scientific field to put an end to trisomy 21 to helping to ensure to help ensure that children would no longer be born with this triplication of the 21st chromosome but unfortunately his scientific discovery instead of helping those children has caused their systemic abortion rates to skyrocket Scientists are now using the information that Dr. Lejeune discovered with the triplication of the 21st chromosome to systematically wipe out children that have that third 21st chromosome. And so this was happening in his lifetime within 10 years after his scientific discovery. And he was so dismayed by all of this. He was at the pinnacle of his career 10 years after making this discovery. And in 1969, he was still receiving all kinds of scientific awards and honors. In fact, in 1969, he received the most prestigious award in the field of genetics called the William Allen Memorial Award. And this is presented by the American Society of Human Genetics. And usually the scientist that receives this award goes on to give some sort of a long lecture explaining about their scientific discoveries. But Dr. Lejeune heroically knew that this was going to be his chance to have an audience of some of the top scientists from around the world. And instead of giving a traditional lecture about his scientific discoveries in the field of genetics, he decided to take the opportunity to speak out against the evil of abortion, specifically systematically aborting children because of the genetic results that come back to them. And he went on from there, unfortunately, to basically be a scientific exile within the bigger world of science. But the Catholic Church noticed Dr. Lejeune's beautiful work and thought that he was such a hero that Pope Paul VI approached him in 1974 and asked him to participate in the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And then Uh, Dr. Lejeune continued to participate in the wider world of science throughout the rest of his career, but he said that the pinnacle of his scientific career happened in 1994 when he became the first chairman of the Pontifical Academy for Life, which was founded by Pope John Paul II. And I thought that this part of his story was absolutely wild. So he was appointed to this role, and exactly 33 days later... On Sunday, April 3rd, 1994, which was Easter Sunday morning, he died. So it was 33 days after Pope John Paul, St. Pope John Paul II, appointed him to the president of the uh, Pontifical Academy for Life that he died. And some of you also may know that 
Jesus died at the age of 33. So I just thought it was such a beautiful little God wink that Dr. Lejeune died 33 days after serving as the president of the Pontifical Academy for Life and on Easter Sunday morning. So he was just a really big deal in the world of science and in the world of genetics. And I believe that he lived a life of heroic virtue that Can you imagine just being a scientist and having this amazing discovery and then finding out that people were using your scientific research to systematically kill the innocent little children around you? I cannot even imagine what that must have been like for him. But his legacy continues on today. And this is what I'm really excited to share about. So he passed away in April. It was Easter Sunday, 1994. And then just two years later, the Jerome Lejeune Foundation was established in 1996. And it was established to carry on his commitment to research, care, and advocacy for people with genetic intellectual abilities. In 1997, they opened their very first hospital. It's called the Jerome Lejeune Foundation Consultation. And They have served over 8,500 patients with Down syndrome and other genetic disorders, and they say that their three missions are care, work, and advocacy. And what sets this hospital that's in Paris apart is that they have a multidisciplinary team that treats the whole person. And as you're going to hear in this podcast episode with Mary Lenneberg, children that are born with born or develop profound special needs require care from a multitude of healthcare professionals. So that includes physical therapists, occupational therapists, surgeons, pediatricians, etc. And in addition to the quality of care that this multidisciplinary team can give, they also ensure that you have psychological care offered, not just for the patient, but for the families as well. And they also are highly involved in advocacy. They train individuals and professionals to be better advocates for those who have genetic disorders. And already over a thousand people attend their training sessions each year at this Paris hospital. And I was very excited to find out that the Jerome Lejeune Foundation is hoping to create another hospital in Washington, D.C., and they hope to open it in May of 2020. And that hospital will also serve children and adults with Down syndrome. And if you'd like to learn more about that, you can go to lejeunefoundation.org. Lejeune is spelled L-E-J-E-U-N-E. And I'll go ahead and put that link in the show notes. But I I, uh, really wanted to share this beautiful quote that he had that I think sums up his whole life mission so beautifully. He said, again and again, we see this absolute misconception of trying to defeat a disease by eliminating the patient. It's ridiculous to stand beside a patient and solemnly say, who is this upstart who refuses to be cured? How dare he resist our art? Let's get rid of him. Medicine becomes mad science when it attacks the patient instead of fighting the disease. We must always be on the patient's side. Always. Dr. Jerome Lejeune was recognized as a servant of God by the Vatican's Congregation for the Causes of Saints in 2012. 
So that means that he, the process for him to become a saint is underway. And if you'd like to learn more about the process of how someone becomes a saint, how they become beatified and then considered a saint, I'll include a link to that in the show notes for those who are interested. And then I'm also going to include a link from a 2012 article from the National Catholic Register talking about the canonization effort for Dr. Lejeune. I just love Dr. Lejeune's story, and I hope you're inspired to learn more about him. And I pray that we will continue to find the beauty and love and dignity for those who have Down syndrome because they truly are saints among us. Today, I have an awesome interview that I want to share with you. I had a chance to speak with Mary Lenneberg. Mary and I first met back in 2014 at the Charleston Adele Gathering hosted by Jen Fulweiler and Hallie Lord. And Mary has such a beautiful testament and witness to what it means to be truly pro-life. Mary is a writer, a speaker, a wife, and a mother. And as she puts it, she likes to share her witness and testimony about God's redeeming love and being brave in the scared. She has taken on all kinds of different roles at her local parish, including liturgy coordinator, youth ministry lead, and confirmation preparation instructor. Currently, Mary is working at Tepeyac OBGYN. I hope I pronounced that correctly. That is a pro-life medical practice in Northern Virginia. And currently, she's also traveling the country speaking to groups of all different ages about God's redeeming love and that faith is the courage to want what God wants for us, even if we can't see where the path leads. She has this beautiful equation of acceptance plus trust equals unimaginable joy. Mary is living in Northern Virginia with her husband, Jerry, of 29 years, and her adult son. She continues to embrace her father's advice. Never quit. Never give up. Never lose your faith. It's the one reason you walk this earth. For God chose this time and place just for you, so make the most of it. I think that quote beautifully sums up Mary Lenneberg and her witness that she's already been to me throughout the past few years since I've known her. Today, we talked about what it means to be a mother of a child with profound special needs, how that affected her marriage and her relationship with her son, Jonathan, and how all of that experience of raising her beautiful daughter, Courtney, into young adulthood. And after she went on to her heavenly reward a few years ago to start to figure out what her new normal looks like and finding out what God has in store for her in this new chapter of life. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation today. Here's Mary. So I am Mary Lenneberg, and I live on the East Coast in Northern Virginia with my husband, Jerry. Um, we've been married this August in 2018. We'll have been married for 30 years. Congratulations. Um, Thank you very much. God is very good. Um, we, we were blessed with four souls, two we never got to meet, and then two, our son Jonathan, who just turned 28, and our daughter Courtney, who was 22 when she passed away three years ago um, and is now home with the Lord. And Courtney was our profoundly special needs child. She was born perfectly fine. And then when she was uh, five weeks old, she began to have, uh, having grand mal seizures. And, um, we never knew why or, 
uh, what the cause was. Um, her official diagnosis was a seizure disorder with uh, global of unknown origin with global developmental delay, which basically means we have no idea and they would treat her symptomatically. So um, when something new came up, they tried to treat it and move on. But through that medical treatment, she was left profoundly disabled um, and very medically fragile. So um, she was 22, five foot eight, uh, beautiful blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, corkscrew curls. Um, but she never spoke. She never walked. She never um, did anything that a typical child would do. She basically stopped development at about nine months of age. So, um, yeah, she she was the heart of our home, and it's been three years without her. And we are learning to live without that constant reminder of living in the present moment and taking each day um, hour by hour as it comes. And that's such a grace-filled way to live. But um, she basically pushed me out into a world of social media to share our journey with the world um, of what it was like to live and love a child like Courtney, along with um, trying to care for a typical kid like our son, Jonathan. And, and um, I've been a practicing Catholic my whole life and, you know, ups and downs with that as well. But I was born into a family of eight kids and I have six brothers and a sister. And um, yeah, who am I? I don't know. We're still trying to figure that out. I, I mean, you know, I think every life has seasons. Mm-hmm. And so at the season that I'm in now is I, I, I had a big birthday this year. I turned 50. All I, right. I, that was a, it was a very scary number to me because I, in my mind, I'm still 25 and um, 50 just seemed ancient order of days. And so but I'm learning that it is a it truly is a mental game. Age is all about your mental uh, acuity and awareness and and what you think it should be um, and I'm learning you know that the body is changing and the um, sleep habits are changing and hormones are just awesome and tremendously awesome we'll leave it at that <laughs> and um, you know you just there's some adjustments that need to be made so um, yeah who am I well I get there you go that's good where do you want to go with that? <laughs> no I think that's fantastic that helps paint the picture of what your life looked like when you entered into marriage and then you gave birth to Jonathan. And now are Jonathan and Courtney three years apart in age? Yeah, just about a little over three. Um, John, Courtney was born in August. Jonathan turned three. Uh, turned did he, turn, he was born in 89. She was born in 92. Okay. So, yeah, is that three? Nine. Yeah, yeah, that's three. There you go. With my math, but... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> See, that's just math you'll find out is just not my game. Me neither. So. <laughs> it's not my charism. We're good. <laughs> so you were able to enter into this vocation of motherhood. You had three years at it with this beautiful, typical child named Jonathan. And then Courtney enters into the picture. And as you said, her special needs did not manifest themselves until later. So you thought that God had given you this other beautiful perfectly typical child again. And then things started to change for you. Prior to Courtney entering into the picture, had you had any experience with a child with profound special needs or was Courtney really your entrance into the world of special needs and what that looks like? Well, I hadn't had any experience with like a profound wheelchair, uh, bound individual. My best friend growing up, Suzanne had a younger brother, Jeff, 
who had, he was fully mobile, but he had intellectual disabilities. So um, he loved Michael Jackson. So in the 1980s, when Michael Jackson came to the height of his um, career, we would, you know, he, he would just sing Michael Jackson songs. And I just remember laughing and, and he would get so excited when you come into the room and, and say, Hey, Jeff, how you doing? And he'd be like, Oh, Mary's here. Mary's here. Mary's here. And that's, you know, it was just, I, I don't know. I just knew him as Jeff. And so mm-hmm. I watched my best friend, be an older sister and it was just the two of them she was the oldest and he was younger um both her parents worked so there's a lot of responsibility that Suzanne had that typical kids didn't have mm-hmm. I understood it and related it to it related to it because I was number two of of eight and I have an older brother and then myself and then five younger brothers so I was kind of like the second mother yeah so I got I understood we, we kind of related to each other on that level we just sort of mothered our younger siblings so that was really my only experience I, I did know a few individuals with down syndrome and if you've ever met anyone with down syndrome they are the most joy filled people on the planet and um so yeah i had i did have some like very limited experience that way but not with anything in relation to a medically fragile handicapped child that required tube feeding and and suctioning and and wheelchair bound or anything no all that was not even in my vernacular at all Because as her special needs started to manifest themselves, it became very clear very quickly from what I understand, just from reading your blog and following you over the years, that it was a steep learning curve for you. You had to figure out, just like you were just talking about, learning how to suction, and then she was wheelchair bound and so on. So can you paint a picture for the rest of us of what a quote unquote typical day looked like for you as you were raising this young girl with profound special needs? I know you already spoke to her diagnoses, but practically speaking, what did that look like for you and for the rest of your family? Well, it kind of changed over time, Mm -hmm. I have to say. When she was younger, it was easier, of course, because she's just a little person. So, you know, you could be in a stroller and not necessarily a wheelchair until she was probably, uh, I think, three three or four. And then you kind of entered this whole new world. Um, when she was seven, she got a feeding tube. That was a whole new experience because she was considered failure to thrive because she kept aspirating and choking on, on liquid and some of the more liquefied foods. So we entered into a different, you know, uh, you kind of leveled up in your care. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll go to kind of what most people know when I came into the blogging world 10 years ago. At that point, she was wheelchair bound. She had a a G-tube. So that meant that there was a tube directly into her stomach where we could give her supplemental formula or um, nutrients from some of her liquid medications could go straight to the tube so we didn't have to fight her on a bad tasting medication or something to help control her seizures. She was able to eat like oatmeal type consistency of food. So we would um, put most of her food, like she ate typical food. So her favorite meal on the planet was meatloaf, mashed potatoes and green beans. Oh, Courtney, I and love so- you. <laughs> so you would put like a, you know, whatever you would serve a, a young woman, uh, you know, a piece of meatloaf, a scoop of mashed potatoes, green beans, and you put it through the food processor. Mm-hmm. And she would be like a little bird. So she would smell it, of course, because she was cortically blind, which means the cortical nerve between her eye and her brain was um, dead. It was it was gray. It should be red and with good blood flow, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, we lost, she lost that at seven months of age. So she could see light and dark and she could, her sense of smell is very heightened. So, um, she could smell when the food was cooking. 
and she would start, she sounded a little bit like Chewbacca. She never spoke English, but she would be like humming, mm, mm-hmm. you know, like this. Mm. And then she would start what we call washing of the hands, which is if you watch kids with autism, they swirl their hands around like they're washing. Yep. And 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 then they they flap, they they hit them back and forth and back and forth. And that's what Courtney would do um, when she get really excited. She was ready she for start, the meatloaf. <laughs> she was ready, and she would be like, oh, you know, just get louder. Um, so if you were, let's say, if we were at the mall, um, which we did take her out, and I never hid that she had special needs. We were out in the world and um, you'd be at the mall, you'd have to be very cognizant that when you hit that food court and it was time for lunch, then you had best have everything ready or else you were going to draw an awful lot of attention, which with Jonathan, when he was younger, would be hard for him. As he got older, he would just laugh. But that, of course, took time as well. But a typical day, okay, a typical day would be um, I would be up at 530 to begin preparing her breakfast and her first medication um, application, which was at 6 a.m. And then um, because she was not able to help in any way with her physical care, you're basically, uh, you have a five foot eight baby. And so you would have to, there was a lot of lifting. There was a lot of physical, um, work for me, um, to physically care for her. And you would have to help her get dressed. You would dress her like a child. Um, she was in adult diapers, uh, you know, diapers her whole life. So you'd have to be very, very careful. She was, she was an Irish woman. So her skin was very fair. Mm -hmm. So you had to be very sensitive to the type of, um, cleaning products that you used and soaps and lotions and all of that. So we were very, very careful about that and very gentle at all times. And then she was a typical young woman. She did get her cycle like a regular child. She, young woman, she, we would have to be, you know, very cognizant of the 10 days leading into her cycle because then her seizures would massively increase. And so I, I would know that we actually, charted using the Creighton method because she was diaper changed. So I could tell when we were coming into that time and I would look at, she was very much, um, she was a 31 day girl, 31 day cycle. So I would know that the 10 days leading into it, we would have elevated seizures. So I would mark that on the calendar and know that we didn't do doctor's appointments during that time. We tried not to schedule family events during that time because it would just be really, really stressful for me as her primary caregiver and for my husband as a secondary caregiver, you know, that we would have to cancel plans or leave a family party or whatever, because she was just, it was too hard for her. So we, all of that was part of our day. Um, she ate like clockwork, um, noon, 10 o'clock snack, one o'clock lunch, six o'clock dinner, 10 o'clock snack. Um, and gosh, that was that schedule for, I think, 12 years, maybe. Um, so you just kind of got into a rhythm. Uh, she was bathed every other day. Um, but during her cycle, she was bathed every day, which sounds like torturous, but for her, the warm water, um, was helpful and relaxing to her and she would feel so much better. I would literally get into the bathtub with her and, um, we'd fill it up with bubbles and warm water and we'd just soak. And, um, she loved that. She loved a warm bath, hated to get her hair washed. Lord Jesus did the child hate to get her hair washed. (laughs) Um, she just, um, it was just her least favorite thing on the planet. Um, so, you know, we were, I was cognizant of that and, you know, we just did it as quickly as we could. Um, and you know, 
we brushed your teeth. We, we did all of these things. Now that sounds like simple care, but for a child who is tactily sensitive, who doesn't reach out to touch things, you know, it's basically a full frontal assault on her every single day. And so you would talk to her and tell her exactly what we're doing. And we did that from when she was a very, very small child. It was one of the best prompts that our very first physical therapist ever told us. And our occupational therapist was the same way. When you talk to these children, even if they cannot communicate back to you, they get used to hearing your voice, the cadence of your voice. They know what's coming next. You know, they, they understand, okay, we're going to brush our teeth now. Here's the toothbrush. And, and I would kind of put the toothbrush on her teeth and she would just open her mouth. Mm-hmm. Now, in the beginning, she didn't do that, but she learned, oh, okay, this is what we're doing now. So when you would get her dressed, you'd say, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to put the shirt over your head. Here we go. Boop, there it is. You know, just like a small child, you know, oh, right arm in, left arm in. But we did that every day of our life um, just so she knew what was happening. You, you wanted to always be very cognizant and respectful of the dignity of her personhood. And, um, you know, I tried very hard to not ever be in public when we have, would have to change a diaper. Mm-hmm. which made it challenging, um, <laughs> very, very challenging, because sometimes you just were. And so you would find a corner in a hallway. And, um, you know, I usually, I wasn't alone with her a lot um, out in public. There, Jerry was usually with me. So he would, we would have this little blanket and he'd hold up the blanket and her wheelchair kind of um, reclined so you could do it, um, you know, she could sleep in her wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And then we would just do like, it was a NASCAR pit crew. You just got in there and did it and took care of yeah. it as quickly as you could. So, you know, I mean, um, I think back now, uh, and I just, I'm amazed that we did all that we did, but at the time it was just life. You, it's just what we knew to do. And we just did our very best, but yeah, her life was pretty regimented, pretty, pretty scheduled. But when she would have flare ups of her seizures, everything stopped and you just dealt with that moment. And, um, I can't tell you the years worth of canceled plans and, um, disappointments for myself and for Jonathan, for Jerry in that, you know, we would have to leave someplace or not go somewhere or, you know, make a change because she couldn't, she couldn't do it. So she definitely ran the house, which, um, you know, I I don't know. I I don't have any regrets. I, I, we left it all on the field of battle. I have no regrets at all. We just did our best every single day. And, um, she is missed and missed greatly. Um, somebody asked me once recently, Mary, even with everything you guys faced, you know, it's got to be better that she's in heaven. I said, well, sure. It's of course it's where we want her to be. It's where we all want to be in heaven. But if he gave me another shot, I'd take her back tomorrow mm-hmm. with everything because I miss her that much. People forget about all of the other caregivers, the medical professionals that are involved for a child like this. You spoke about a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, and how many oh, other yeah. specialists did you see on okay. a regular basis? So Courtney had physical therapy twice a week, occupational therapy twice a week, um, speech therapy once a week that was mostly geared toward feeding and safe feeding. Mm -hmm. Um, She had a neurologist, a pediatrician, a um, pulmonologist, an orthopedist because she had a, her, her spine was an upside down question mark. Mm -hmm. So she had severe scoliosis. Um, She had an AFO specialist, which is working with the orthopedist to make the, um, the, the braces for her feet. 
Um, she had, gosh, we had um, a urologist working with liver and kidneys. We had, I don't, I think that's, I think those are the ones that we saw pretty much all the time. Okay. So there were others that came in and out. <laughs> so given all of those medical appointments, all of her physical mm-hmm. needs, this is more than a full-time job for anyone. And you have the gift to be able to be at home with her and do this. But was Jerry able to come in and out of the dance of caregiving seamlessly? Or did Courtney tend to only want mom? And what did that look like? Did you have any other family members other than Jonathan and Jerry who were able to swoop in when you needed assistance? Courtney was all about her daddy. Okay. Um, so when Jerry arrived home... Every evening, like for the first 12, uh, let me see, Courtney was born in 92. We were still in the, my husband was an officer in the United States Navy. So we were still on active duty military service when she was born. Thank you for your service. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It was an honor and a privilege. Um, It truly was. Um, But she, let me see, when she was born, we were in Brunswick, Maine, and we were getting ready to move duty stations. So we came down here for a family wedding, did the baptism. I ended up at the ICU. Jerry went back to Maine to do the move by himself. He'd never done it before. They ended up packing the trash can and the refrigerator full of food. <laughs> so that was a delight on the other end of that. But I can't, you know, the, the guy did his best. He's like, I didn't know they didn't empty the refrigerator. Um, and they don't. They just lock it up and take it. I'm like, it's all right, sweetie. We just did our best in crisis. Uh, we ended up in D.C., and then we were on aboard the USS Enterprise in, in Virginia Beach for three years. And so as he was able to in the beginning of her life, yes, he came in. He did. Um, he was the one that would always help with the bath time as far as the hair washing was concerned. Mm. Um, he would come in so I could hold her, and then he would you know, do the hair really quick. Um, he would feed her. Uh, there wasn't a diaper. The man didn't change. God bless him. Mm -hmm. As Courtney came into her womanhood at the age of 12, freaked him out and, and (laughs) just didn't know what to do with that for a while. But, um, you know, he, I talked to him and I'm like, he was, he was just afraid of, of, uh, he just wanted to be so respectful mm-hmm, of her mm-hmm. as a woman. And so when she would be in her cycle, I would try my best to be the one that changed all the diapers. Just this kind of, cause that's just hard. I mean, he's a good, good man, but that is just hard. But you know, if, if I was at the grocery store or I was, you know, somewhere else, then he would have to do it. And he never complained. And he would, he just talked to her. He's like, all right, dad's doing this now. And I know I'm not mom, but can you just help me out here? And she would, um, you know, she would giggle or she would kick him or something. <laughs> she would just be like, sure, dad, no problem. Um, but yeah, no, as far as her lifting and all, oh yeah, he was very much an active part participant in her care. Um, when he would come home, he would say, Hey, where's my pickle? We called her pickle. Cause she could be a sour pickle or sweet pickle depending <laughs> on the day. Like any and other so he- kid. Exactly. So he called her pickle and he's like, where's my pickle? And she would just turn and smile and giggle. And I could say boo and the child would never pay attention. Sounds just like my kids when my husband comes home. (laughs) And her brother was the same way. They both have this very deep resonating voice. And she just, oh, wait, there's somebody else here. I don't need to pay attention to you, mom. Forget that you're trying to feed me. I don't care. Yeah, she sounds very typical. Mom, there's, yeah. (laughs) 
So she really, um, yeah, he was very much an active part of it. And as far as Jonathan's concerned, um, yes and no. Um, having witnessed and, you know, God, he prepares you for these things and you don't even know you're being prepared. Like I mentioned, my friend Suzanne, I watched the pressure that was on her and it wasn't, it wasn't a bad pressure. It was just the fact of their life, mm-hmm. you know, um, her parents were doing their best. She was doing their best. And so when we knew that Courtney would be profoundly disabled and that there would be no miraculous healing from this, I was really cognizant of trying to make sure that Jonathan had his own life mm-hmm. and that he didn't feel like he was responsible for her care because he wasn't, that was his mom and dad's job. Yeah. But <clears throat> what we came to understand is there's no way to not do that. Sure. They will carry this responsibility because they love their sibling and they will internalize uh, things that you never understood it was even possible to internalize if that makes sense. Yeah. I, um, as we came along in her care, he had a lot of, um, outbursts as a small child. Um, he got kicked out of preschool when he was four. That was a year after she was born. We thought it was just typical kind of ADD sort of, we need a <clears throat> more stimulating environment kind of thing. What we came to understand later was he was basically acting out of, of fear mm-hmm. and worry and concern that his sister was going to die. Yeah. And we, we didn't know that until, um, he was 19 years old wow. and he came home from college and, um, he was really, really angry and he was a straight A student. And in two semesters he was failing and we didn't know why. And we didn't understand. And we were kind of doing the whole, listen, dude, you got to get your life together. Come on, what's going on? And he came home and, and we sought counseling because when your son comes home and puts his fist to the wall, you're kind of going, this is a problem yeah. and we need to address it. And, you know, we just didn't know. We were we looked at each other and, and were confounded as to what was going on. So we sought help. And in the process of that, he was diagnosed as being um, depressed, clinically depressed and dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder due to two specific instances in his teenage life when he was home. Both the times I was at the grocery store getting milk and eggs, literally, Mm -hmm. but he was home with Courtney for those 10 minutes and she stopped breathing both times and which she would do during a seizure occasionally. And it, it never left him because the last thing he wanted was it to be his fault that she passed away. Mm And so he carried that with him. I mean, I remember when he was nine, he woke up one morning with a horrible earache and his eardrum burst and he had blood on his pillow. And I was, I was like, Jonathan, honey, this had to have hurt for two or three days. Well, we had just gotten out of the hospital, out of the ICU with Courtney. And he said, mom, it's okay. Courtney, Courtney needed you. It's okay. And I thought, oh "Oh my gosh, this child (laughs) is willing to let his eardrum burst because his sister needed the attention and the care. And at that point we had made, we started to make some changes in how we had him um, in his daily life with Courtney. And we tried to spend more time with him individually. And, and we made the decision to homeschool at at that point, just because she was in school and being cared for. So I could concentrate 100% on him. And that was a huge blessing to us. But even with all the adjustments that we made and the help that we sought, they're going to take on what they take on because they are who they are. And every personality is different and every child is different. But 
with Jonathan, he had what they call survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. He used to, he would say to us in his twenties, he's like, mom, I'm the stronger one. I can do this. I, I I'm a big guy. I can, I can handle that. Why did God choose to give it to Courtney? She's just a little bird. That's what he called her. He's just a little bird. And I said, well, I don't know why, but I do know that God needed you to be her older brother. And I do know that he needed her in your life. And he needed you in her life because both of your paths to sanctification involve being siblings and and loving one another. And he is creating for you a future where something in that future you're going to go look back at this time with Courtney and you're going to look back at your experiences and you're going to be able to draw upon it. And he is such a, he's, he's six foot two bearded bear of a man. <laughs> and, um, and he is just got the biggest and most empathetic heart. And he is not afraid of anyone in a wheelchair of any disability of any kind. He might not understand it in the beginning and I'll ask an awful lot of questions especially those kids that can't communicate because he doesn't want to hurt them in any way to, you know, you, you just kind of don't go running up to someone in a wheelchair and say, hi, unless they're able to communicate with you back. You kind of need to go, you know, is it okay if I touch their hand? Do they like a soft voice or a louder voice? Um, is there something they love? Do they not like the smell of lavender or the smell of oranges? Or you kind of have to sort of do a little troubleshooting. And he learned that with his sister. Um, and so he's able to then, uh, translate that into his daily life. And, um, as to why it would be Courtney and not Jonathan, that's up to God and God alone. And I, I don't lose a lot of sleep over it and he no longer does. Good. Um, but he did for a while and, uh, he's in a, you know, we, we entered into four years of very intense therapy and, um, he has come out of it a stronger, braver um, man and whomever, if, if God so calls him to serve as a husband and a father, whomever that beautiful young lady is, is getting quite a gem. And if he calls him to serve his church, um, that's a pretty awesome thing too. I, I don't know what his vocation is. He's still discerning that, but, um, he's pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm pretty proud of him. I would love to speak for a moment about woundedness. Every family that's made up of human beings has it. And I love how you share so openly about seeking out counseling to try and heal some of the wounds that happened as a result just of your family's lived experience, because we've all been there, whether or not we have a family member that has profound special needs. And I would like to hear from you, Mary, what advice do you have for a mom who's really struggling with the mom guilt and holding on to those wounds that are preventing her family from moving on toward healing? And we're recording this during the Lenten season. I think this is the perfect time to speak about this. What advice do you have for those moms who are really hanging on to those wounds, the mom guilt of, I really didn't spend enough time with this child, or I didn't meet this child's needs, or I completely missed what was happening in this child's life? Because we all have done that from one time or another. What would you say to that mom? I was going to say, I, I do all of that on a rotating basis. Ditto. Um, <laughs> yeah. What would I say to that mom? I would say, first of all, you're human. Yeah. Um, we as moms, we seem to forget that. We forget that we um, can't be everything to everyone. 
uh, there is only one who can, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Preach so, it. um, number one, you, you cannot be everything to everyone as much as you want to be. You just can't. My own mother and I have had wonderful conversations on this because my mother was a mom of eight. She had eight kids in 10 years. And there are things that she missed and things that she talks about now saying, if I could go back and do this again and do this again, I would. And we've talked about letting go. You have to let go of this, um, either through confession or through a spiritual director or through general Christian counseling Whatever you need, whatever you need help you need to seek in order to do it, then do it. Don't be afraid. Be brave and the scared. Don't be afraid to seek help or counsel on it because the more you allow it to seep into your everyday and you are carrying these backpacks of boulders in the wagon up the mountain and you are never going to get to that mountaintop. You are going to grind yourself into the side of the mountain. And God doesn't want that. He doesn't want that for any of us. So we have to learn how to say, yeah, I messed up there. I did not do my best there. If it's a conversation with your child or your young adult or your adult child, who is now having children of their own, where you go in and you restore and repair relationship, then you do it. It is an act of humility and an act of mercy and grace to do so. Um, because it's our life is all about community and relationship. And so if we can't have the fullness of relationship within our families, then it becomes ever so much harder to have it with a community that stands outside of our family. Um, there are many things that affect those relationships. You know, addictions affect them. Um, just woundedness from our own childhoods that we brought into our marriages and now we bring into our parenting. So I think I was really afraid of counseling. I was really afraid to seek outside counseling. And I thought, you know, we weren't that family. Mm -hmm. And and I say it that way because I think that's what a lot of people think. They think that mental health issues and emotional health and spiritual health, like they're all separate things and they are separate things, but they all work together for the good. And so, yes, there are things spiritually you can do, of course, but that there's also strong mental health that needs to, you know, a healthy um, perspective on things that needs to happen as well. And so sometimes you need to seek counsel in that area and in the emotional health arena in order to really kind of come into that spiritual healthiness and fullness of personhood. So I um, don't be afraid to ask for help. I spent a decade or more sitting in a corner trying to figure it all out not wanting to embarrass my husband or my family um, and put our dirty laundry out there. That's what I felt like it was. And when I started to first blog about things, I was very happy, happy, clappy, clappy, cheerful, cheerful. And then um, after about two years, I just pulled down the curtain. I'd ha I couldn't do it anymore. Um, it was hard. It was messy. It was broken. And, um, and so I kind of entered into a season of sort of breaking down the walls. And, and by sharing that experience, um, I pray, I hope and I pray that it allows somebody else who's sitting in the corner in darkness to turn the darn light on and say, you know what? I need help. I got to I gotta figure something out. And what worked for me is not going to work for everybody. Mm -hmm. Families are, are so, they're as individual as the individuals in the families. Yeah. They're as unique as each unique soul that exists within them. 
what worked for me is not going to work for another family or another wife or mother. So you have to do your own investigating. You have to kind of be just like I was an advocate for Courtney. I was her voice. I was her hands and her feet. I had to learn to do the same for Jonathan until he was an adult when he could do it for himself. And even now there's moments where, you know, like adulting questions. He's like, mom, uh, I get a physical every year, right? I mean, I just call them up and make an appointment. I mean, how exactly does that work? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, for so long, you know, we took care of it for them. So you kind of, yeah, you just call them up, son, and you go in and you get it done. And this is why you have a job with insurance. And this is what the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now you think of that on a, on a special, with a special needs family, you have, um, you know, a situation where the siblings are looking at each other going, how are we going to take care of our sister or our brother if something happens to mom and dad? Yeah. I mean, it gets super complicated. And, you know, I look back on our time with Courtney and yes, she had profound disabilities, but you know what? They were meant for us. There are other families that deal with things that are much more difficult than what we dealt with. And, um, on a daily basis. And so, and the loneliness and isolation that they feel just magnifies the older the child gets. So ask for help. And if you're one of those people that somebody's asking for help of just empathy, 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 try for a moment to imagine what it is on a daily basis to not know what's going to happen from one minute to the next with this child. Mm -hmm. And, and if they are seeking help or counsel or, you know, can you run to the grocery store to get eggs and milk because I can't leave my autistic son because he's going to, he's going to run away Mm -hmm. or, you know, undo the lock of the house and get out and, and he'll hurt, you know, he'll get hurt. So think about it in that term and think about being the hands and feet of Christ to someone else. But, um, yeah, seek help. Don't be afraid to do it. Don't be, there's so many wonderful, awesome people that literally when we finally did ask for help in 2007 was the first time we really, we were going to lose our home and, um, we were running behind on the mortgage and we had a second mortgage and we just couldn't do it anymore. And we were sharing our hearts one night over dinner with a friend and he looked at us at us and this was before GoFundMe and before all of that. And he said, we're going to do a friend raising and we're going to take care of this because people have been, you know, asking for years, how can we help you? And the two of you have been like, oh no, we're fine. We're fine. Until we really, really weren't fine. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they did it. They raised enough to pay off the second mortgage and we saved our home. Wow. And, um, and from that point on, God used that moment of tremendous humility, um, because we had to open ourselves up to judgment and criticism. Mm -hmm. And we still, there are still wounds that exist within our extended family. And, and we lost friends over that, um, to this day that, um, only God can repair because, we we made our dirty laundry public. Yeah, we turned it inside out, and Mother Teresa was the one who said, "In order for someone to be charitable, someone else has to be humble and ask for charity." Say that again. In order for someone to be charitable, to learn charity, there has to be someone that is humble enough to ask for the charity. That's beautiful. I love that. And that's what, that was the breaking point for us when a friend of mine shared, that's my version of her quote. I don't know what the exact quote is, but that's what she said. Mm -hmm. And when she shared that with me over dinner one night, I thought, okay, Lord, I guess, I guess that's us. We have to do that. And, 
<clears throat> that was the beginning of, uh, of a beautiful turn of events for us. And that's really the point where I learned that, you know, if there's something that I can do to help somebody else that's just received this diagnosis and they're crushed and they're worried and they don't know how they're going to do it, um, you know, share the journey, ask for help, ask for help. It's going to be okay. That's a perfect segue to talk about self-care. How in the world did Mary Lenneberg take care of herself while raising Jonathan and Courtney? Or did you? And what did that look like? Well, to be perfectly honest with you and very transparent, I, whenever it took me a long time when somebody would say self-care to me, that said self selfishness. Uh I, I, I could not wrap my head around it. How did Mary care for herself? I baked a lot of brownies. Mm -hmm. I, um, ate a lot of ice cream. Um, at one point, um, I was close to 300 pounds and the breaking point for me was when I was having trouble physically caring for my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, um, and a lot of you'll see that in a lot of profoundly special needs families, you'll see that one parent might be obese. Another parent might have an issue with alcohol or um, be a smoker, or um, they might go the other way and be uber healthy and constantly working out. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that in um, the special needs community, because people have no control over their special needs situation. There is no way I knew when Courtney was going to have another seizure. I had no indication ever. It just happened. Mm -hmm. So when you have so little control of your daily life, you tend to swing left or right to those extremes over your person. Yeah. Okay. So for me, I was Martha Stewart on crack. I baked, I sewed, I baked some more, I canned, I did, um, I smocked, did the English smocking. Courtney had beautiful English smock dresses. I, because I never slept because I would be by her bed watching for the next seizure. Mm. I, um, made throw more throw pillows in a 10 year period than should ever inhabit the earth. Um, I did all of those things because I was trying to to control, you know, and I didn't realize it at the time until one day I was lifting her and I literally, um, was sweating and it was like a workout to lift her from her wheelchair to her bed. Yeah. And I thought I'm going to die before Courtney dies. I can't do that. And so that's when this idea of self care, um, lost its stigma to me. Mm Um, so what did I do for self-care after that point? When I reached that point, um, I'm, I love food. I love hospitality. I'm a person who has never been afraid to open my door to anyone. And I don't care if you count my, my dust bunnies or not, or name them. (laughs) I don't care. Um, if I can feed you a meal and make you feel like you're loved, that to me was the greatest gift that anybody could ever give me. Mm -hmm. I received more from that even to this day. So we began to have people over, um, and we began to serve simple meals. I mean, you know, macaroni and cheese, I don't care, (laughs) meatloaf, mashed potatoes, uh, it doesn't have to be lobster bisque. And so we began to invite people into our lives, um, and we became more open with Courtney and her care and, um, and we were loved in return for that. I'm a people person. I love to be around people. I draw energy from people. Um, and so I had begun to isolate myself because I was embarrassed and I was, I don't know, just, the, I, I just wasn't in a good mental health headspace. 
And then when I began to turn it around, I, um, I just found life again. And, uh, so now I walk every day. I try to, winter's been hard, but, uh, I walk, I occasionally do Zumba, which is more dancing and fun for me. I don't follow any of the steps. I just look like the spastic <laughs> grader in the, yeah, I'm in the back of the class, like a spastic ninth grader at the winter <laughs> dance, you know, just going, come on, let's do it. I have no fear. I mean, if I can get up in front of um, the first Adele conference I ever attended, I sang uh, lip synced all about the bass, you know, come on. <laughs> and there was a whole lot of bass going on is all I can say about that. But uh, you just I, I find humor, you know, we Jerry and I have just we laugh a lot. Mm-hmm. And we always have but now we just do it more boldly. And um, because laughter is medicine. And so you know, we open the doors of our home, we invite in whoever needs to come in. And um, sometimes it's comfortable, sometimes it's not, but God always directs our path. So um, I love a good mani-pedi, you know, so that's been nice, but that is always budget driven. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it just depends on the season of life. So I've learned to do things very inexpensively because raising a special needs child was uh, yeah, a budget buster. So, um, it just, yeah, I, I just, um, now for me today, it's time. It's time spent with my husband. It's time spent with my son. It's time spent with my best friend. Um, you know, with my girlfriends, um, that to me is self care. And I receive so much out of an hour with a cup of coffee at Starbucks in a corner laughing and just sharing. So I love that. that's pretty much where I spend. Yeah, that's my self-care. So one last question about self-care. Pretend that you are Mary Lennonberg's best friend 15 years ago. How would you bully Mary into taking better care of herself? What would you tell her? Well, I'll tell you exactly what my best friend of 15 years ago told me. Oh, even better. I love it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, she was very clear. Um, she said two things. Number one. Nothing we did, no decision we made, um, was our, with Courtney was our fault. I was carrying around a lot of guilt Mm. and I hadn't let it go and I hadn't worked my way through it. And she was very direct in saying, you got to let that go or it's going to kill you. And she was very right. The second thing, um, she said to me was, um, talk to our lady. She held her son as he died. Well, he was dead by the time he got back into her arms, but she, she lost her son. She watched him die after devoting her entire being, her entire life to him. And so anything that I possibly could ever feel or experience or, or walk through, she had already done it. She had already done it. And so she was the perfect BFF to dial up in the middle of the night when I couldn't handle what was happening. And so, um, I did, I began, uh, I mean, I'm named Mary Elizabeth. I'm named my feast day is the, the visitation. Um, so, uh, you know, my parents were very intentional in that name, not even knowing how God would direct my path. But, um, I began a relationship with our lady. Um, so prayer has become a really good thing, um, but yeah, that's what she told me. She said I had to let it go and I had to bring it to Mama Mary because um, I was headed down a really not so great path and it was not going to end well. That's a good friend. So, 
Yeah, she's pretty freaking awesome. I would say so. so yeah. yeah. I am very blessed. She's awesome. Yes. The statistics are really scary for marriage when there is a child with special needs. And could you just really briefly explain to the listeners why that could be? Just practically speaking, day in and day out, what does that do to a marriage when a child with special needs comes into the picture? Absolutely. Okay. So when we were, I'll take you back to when Courtney was seven months old and we were in the pediatric research unit at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. And a team of doctors had walked in after a week spent there trying to figure out what was happening and why. Um, Well, we knew she was having seizures, but why this was happening. And three people walked in, Dr. John Freeman, one of the best pediatric pediatric neurologist to ever walk the planet. He now rests with the Lord, but he walked in. Um, The lead social worker walked in and the lead mental health um, psychiatrist walked in, which was an odd combination to walk into a room when you're trying to tell parents about the medical future of their child. The first thing Dr. Freeman said was she would never walk. She would never talk. She would never be able to live independently. She would not probably not make it to her first birthday, let alone her third birthday, and that we needed to be prepared for that. The social worker said that we would probably be divorced by the time we reached, if she did reach her third birthday, we probably would not be married. And I'm being very honest. They were very direct with us. Mm -hmm. They informed us that 80% of all marriages with special needs kids end in divorce. And that she recommended that and their children end up with some sort of substance abuse problem, their typical children, if there are other children in the family. Mm -hmm. So she recommended we get into marriage counseling right away. And she recommended that we have our son start seeing a counselor right away. Wow. The third one was the psychiatrist who said those special needs siblings um, have a higher rate of suicide than any other siblings because they lose hope. Because their parents divorce, the the children end up with one parent or uh, obviously one parent or the other, most typically the mother, um, and the father walks away. Wow. Now, in many cases, the the it's the other way around. So I, I you know, that is that is shared equally among the sexes. Sure. But. Um, and that they end up isolated, alone, desolate, desperate, and um, suicide becomes a very um, active part of their thinking. So this was in 1993. Okay. Now you can imagine what it is like now. Mm-hmm. Okay. The statistics are even worse. They're even more horrific. So what do I say about marriage. Well, I praise God for my faith, Mm. my Catholic faith, because you see, my husband and I have a covenant and a covenant is deeper than a contract. I am not his property. He is not mine. We are given to one another faithfully by God. We were created for the other to be each other's helpmate. Okay. I recognize that very early on in my marriage and my marriage is not perfect. My husband had an addiction to pornography for the first 12 years of my marriage um, before God healed him of that addiction. And it still continues like alcoholism. Once you have an addiction, there is there is a bruise that exists there that Satan likes to step on every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so we are very vigilant about that in our marriage. Um, 
the amazing thing for us, which I'm, I, I truly believe is God's grace, is that Courtney did not split us down the middle. Courtney brought us together as a team. We had a harder time after Courtney's death in my marriage than we did while she was alive. Mm. Because she, her needs, we, there was nothing Jerry wouldn't do or I wouldn't do or Jonathan wouldn't do to make her day better. Mm-hmm. We loved her that much. So when that was removed from our day-to-day life and our day-to-day marriage, we kind of looked at each other and thought, oh, what are we going to do now? Like, do you even care? You know, yeah. she's gone. What marriage exists now? You know, do you even like me? Do you even think I'm pretty? Do I think you're cute? Do I even want you to be with me for the remainder of my life? I mean, these were really hard questions we asked each other because it was hard. I mean, the statistics of parents divorcing after they lose a child to death of whatever, however that happens, are just as hard as the ones of special needs parenting. Mm -hmm. So we not only made it through parenting Courtney and caring for Courtney we made it through and are making it through grieving our daughter and my only answer to that is the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Catholic faith um that's it's truly I I I don't want to make light of it because we promised each other we wouldn't quit my husband knelt down next to me in a rocking chair in johns hopkins after they came in and they told us all of that horrible stuff and he looked at me and said i'm not leaving you you're not leaving me we will not desert our daughter we will not desert our son i don't care what kind of hell we have to walk through but we're going to do this together mm-hmm. and i believed him and i promised him the same and there was a lot of stuff that we had to walk through And it was messy, and it was painful, and it required marriage counseling and marriage mentoring, and it required the sacrament of confession, sometimes multiple times in a week during the hard, hard parts. Mm -hmm. But in the end, he's he is my helpmate. I cannot imagine my life without that man walking next to me. I. He has expressed to me that he can't imagine the other way. And I'll give you this past weekend as an actual example. So this past weekend we spent with 150 teenagers. We do youth ministry at our parish, and it was five different parishes gathered for a winter retreat. And I received a specific answer to prayer that I started praying 30 years ago. And that was for my husband to step into the spiritual leadership of our family. Mm. He's a convert to the faith, and it's not something that he felt comfortable with. I was the Catholic one, and then he became a Catholic 11 years into our marriage. But it just wasn't something that, you know, I was the one that led prayers. I was the one that made sure the sacraments were, were taken care of and, you know, when the Holy Days of Obligation were. But this past weekend, that man walked into the spiritual headship of our family, Mm. and he did it in such a bold and beautiful way, and as a witness to 150 teenagers, that I sat in the back of the room and listened to him speak with such grace and such hard truth that um, about what God has done in his life and how he has redeemed all things that um, I wept quietly in the corner and I praised the good Lord. And I just want to encourage anybody that's listening to this that is really struggling in their marriage, really struggling to um, 
to keep it together, uh, that if you don't lose hope, don't lose hope. Keep praying, persevere and pray a prayer, persevere in seeking help and assistance in your marriage. Find a good couple <clears throat> that's a little bit further down the road from you and one that's a little bit younger than you and allow them to mentor you, allow them to <clears throat> build good and holy friendships with you because that's where your husband will go to seek counsel. That's where I will go to seek counsel. Those friendships are trusted and very, very precious, but don't ever give up hope because those answers to prayer that you are seeking, God will answer one of three ways. He will either say no, he will say yes, or he will say, just wait with me because you're not quite ready to receive the answer. And this weekend I received a very specific answer and it was 30 years of waiting. And yet when it came, I was finally ready to receive it. And it was just an absolutely beautiful and incredible moment but I will never, ever forget. And I'm so incredibly grateful to God for giving me. Wow. That's beautiful, Mary. And I'm so grateful to you and Jerry for sharing so openly about the reality of marriage with two human beings who we both come into this broken and you have shared so beautifully about not just the brokenness because we're all there, but when God enters into the picture and when we allow God into our marriages, the beautiful, awesome things that he can do with it. And sometimes it takes 30 years, but if we're patient mm -hmm. and we work with him, he can do so much. So thank you for sharing about that so beautifully. You're very welcome. Would Mary of today have advice for Mary of 20 years ago? If you were looking at Mary in that rocking chair in Johns Hopkins, what would you say to her? How would you advise her to take care of her marriage? And what would Mary of today ask of Jerry at that time? Oh, Mary of today. Okay, I'll, I'll ask the second part. Answer the second part first. Okay. Mary of today would ask of Jerry um, to be truthful in where he was at the time. Mm. Um, this was in the height of probably, no, it would be another another year or two before I would discover um the depth of his addiction to pornography. But, um, of course, you know, you discover it when you're supposed to discover it and when you're able to handle it. But my brokenness and his brokenness, you know, I had an alcoholic father until I was 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And so the love of the father is something, my self-worth is something that I've always struggled with. And, um, so I would, I would seek truthfulness from him because, his wound is more of a mother wound of this wound of perfection of I'm never good enough. My wound is more of a father wound of I'm never good enough. And I never really heard the words. I love you. I just heard the expectation. So what you'll recognize in that is we both suffer from the same wound. Yeah. We both did not feel like we were worthy. And when we found another who we could relate to understand and, um, I could say to him, but you are worthy and you are handsome and you are smart and you are capable and you are my hero and my knight in shining armor. And, you know, you look really cute in a flight suit and let's do this, <laughs> you know, and he could say to me, you are smart enough. You are beautiful enough. You are talented enough. You are capable enough and strong enough. And how many Hallmark movies am I going to have to watch over the course of my married life to prove it to you? <laughs> You know, when you bring all of that together, what you see are two people that are seeking 
um, love and, and complete acceptance with the other. And what we, he didn't know of me and I didn't know of him at that time was how broken we both really truly were. And that it would be in exposing that brokenness to the other that we would truly come together as a couple to say, um, you are worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. You are worth fighting for. And it's the same concept with our Lord. Um, We are worth fighting for. Our souls are so precious to him that he goes to battle every single day to make sure we understand how precious we are in his sight and to make sure that we know at any time we can choose love and we can choose him. We can choose redemption. We can choose to receive mercy and forgiveness and we can come back home. You know, it's the, it's the whole idea of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. You know, once the father saw him coming home in humility, he ran to him. He did not wait for the son to come home. He ran to him, arms open wide and said, come to me. And that is what we learned to be for each other. It was not perfect. There were lots of really loud conversations Mm -hmm. and a lot of accusation and a lot of, well, you did this. Well, so what? You did this. Well, so what? I mean, there was a lot of maturity that had to happen. But I now look at a man who would lay down his very life for me. He cared for me and for our daughter. Mm -hmm. And laid down his life in practical service to his family. And that is huge. I laid down my life by walking away from, um, I don't know if I would have had a career doing something. I'm not sure what that would have looked like. But I chose to serve in this way. And I praise God that we were able for me to do so because so many families don't have that choice. The parents both have to work to even keep a roof over their heads. So they have to rely that that humility comes much earlier to them because they have to rely on outside help to make it all work. So, um, what, what I would say to him is I I forgive you. I will forgive you. Just tell me what it is. Mm -hmm. Don't run from it. Let's stop running. What I would say to myself was, um, is you are smart enough. You are smart enough to do this. You are smart enough and capable enough to handle this. Um, You are worthy of love. And it doesn't matter if you almost failed out of high school or struggled with math your whole life or you're dyslexic. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, God made you for great things. And he is going to use any ability or disability. See, we have to always, I want to take a moment just to reframe that. Every single one of us is disabled. Amen. All of us are. Yes. All None of us has 100% perfect ability in anything, okay? And everything all at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. So with Courtney, her disability was out there for everybody to see. With you and I, we hide it, yep. okay? So we used to call Courtney inside out. Because Courtney, you could see it, whereas we, we hide our disability. So if we were to turn ourselves inside out, you'd be able to see everything. Mm -hmm. And if we can see everything and we're walking around like wounded people, then how much more empathetic would other people be toward us? Because they would know that they're among the walking wounded. And so they would might be able to say, gosh, I can help you with this. Let me show you the beauty of this, of how you do this so well. Let me encourage you in this. And you in turn would say, you think that of yourself? Oh, sister, oh, brother, let me show you how awesome you are at this and this and this, which is why 
I feel like he is calling me to this ministry of encouragement. Okay, because we need to lift each other up, to lift each other up, not only in encouragement, but in prayer. Mm -hmm. Because see, when you're lifting someone up, what is happening? You're lifting them up above you, ahead of you. You are humbling yourself and lifting someone before you. Mary, to our Lord. That is something that I have always really admired about you. And I want you to hear this compliment and not deny it. I want you to hear me say this. I have always truly admired your ability to be not just a cheerleader, but a genuine cheerleader for all of these beautiful women and families and young people that you minister to. I have only gotten a chance to speak with you briefly at the Adele gathering, but I have watched you in person and with me personally, taking that time to carve out that individual attention and let that person feel like they're the only person in the room when you're surrounded by hundreds of others and to let them know the love of Jesus and to convey that to them. And that's a gift. So thank you for doing that and for answering God's call. I love that about you. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. I think I know for me, um, I, it's just what I've always done because I know what it is to be kicked aside. Mm -hmm. I know what it is to be called stupid. I know what it is to be made, uh, to be made to feel less than I know what it is to walk into a room with your child in a wheelchair and your hyper 12 year old, um, to, Have people just instantly stare at you. I know what it is to walk around a grocery store as your daughter sounds like Chewbacca and the turn a corner and have her kick her leg out and take out an entire end cap of green beans. So um, I know what it is (laughs) to be the one to draw all the negative attention. And I, I, I just, I don't ever want anyone in my presence to feel smaller than. I don't want to be responsible for ever making anyone feel smaller than. And, um, I know that I have, I'm not, uh, perfect by any means. I know that I've held grudges and I've, I've made judgments and, um, I have asked and relied upon the mercy and grace of our Lord God to forgive me for that. And if I've done that to anyone that's hearing the sound of my voice now, please understand that, um, I ask your forgiveness. I just, I, I just know what it is to be alone Mm -hmm. and to not feel like there's anybody in your corner. And, um, I am so grateful that I had people in my life to lift me up before the Lord and to show me the truth of it. And, um, my husband really, I have to say is my greatest cheerleader, um, the Lord Jesus first and then him. And, um, I am beyond grateful for that. And it's hard earned, you know, yeah. you, when you've been through the fire, um, you come out the other side to the healing. And um, I don't know what's ahead for myself or for him or for us as a couple or Jonathan or our family. I, I don't worry about that. Um, I let God worry about that. I just try to live in the present moment and do my very best to um, to be there for whoever needs me to be there for them. the church as a whole. We're talking about a global entity here, but can you speak to very quickly before I let you go, 
how the church is doing in terms of supporting families with special needs. Speak to specific times where you felt the body of Christ lifting you up, or maybe you have some specific concrete ways that you would suggest parishes support special needs families. Well, that's a tricky, tricky question, and I'll tell you why it is. Because you have to understand, for many decades, special needs kids weren't taken to church. Um, Our society was not open to them, okay? So a parent who, in the 1950s and 60s, might have had a special needs child, they would stay home, and one parent would go to church, and then the other parent would go to the next mass, okay? They, They weren't taken into a church. So I will speak to our experience going from the late, 90s all the way through to the time of her death um we were always welcomed in church now um when we moved to northern virginia and we became members of saint mary of sorrows church in fairfax virginia um the very first mass we ever attended uh people approached us and wanted to know who we were and who our daughter was and um i looked at my husband and we had never experienced anything like that in the previous seven years And we knew we had found a home. Um, You have to look in a church to what I call your circles of empathy, um, to where those people that approach the special needs family, to inquire about them, to ask how they're doing, to offer assistance. Those are what I call the circles of empathy. And every parish, every church, no matter what denomination you are, every church has them. These are individuals that are just naturally called by God to serve this community. So um, I'm grateful that we have them. We have several of them at our parish. Um, We've also been to churches where it was like an ice cube. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. And anytime she made a noise, people would stare at us. It's the same thing, I think, for young families with small children. I understand the looks. I get it. Um, And I think it's it's horrific. Um, But the Catholic Church, I know, as an example, is doing so much better than they were. They are, there are now, um, I know in our pair, in our diocese of the diocese of Arlington, we have a brand new position at the diocesan level to assist families with disabilities for special, um, liturgies and to make sure that their kids get the sacraments. I mean, our kids weren't even getting the sacraments. Mm. Um, and it's not that my daughter who really didn't have the capacity to fully understand communion, um, could be catechized. She really couldn't be, but that's because she couldn't communicate with you. Right. So, but why would we deny her the consolation of our Lord through Holy communion? Why would we ever deny her that? Um, praise God. They didn't. Um, but that was because we had a good relationship with our pastor. He came to know our daughter. He understood who she was. We had a beautiful experience on a trip to Lourdes, France, on a healing pilgrimage where all of that sort of came to be. Um, confirmation, she was confirmed on her 16th birthday. So, um, But that's a, a sacrament that's given to children in the NICU if, if there's a possibility that they may die. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit different. But she was welcomed in to the community with the sacraments. And because she was welcomed in, there have been several other families that have come since our time when she was younger who now are also welcomed in. Um, because our pastor, it's really up to the pastors and to the priests. And and if you're not in the Catholic faith and you're in a different denomination, it's up to, again, the church leadership to be more open to the the needs of these children and to the needs of their families. Um, So I think they're doing a better job 
than when we first started our journey. Um, I think it's up to the, I think it ends up being kind of an individual parish mission. And uh, that can be difficult if you're in a parish that doesn't seem to have that charism. Um, I'm not a fan of church shopping, but in this case, when there are such extenuating circumstances, um, I'll go on record in saying church shop if you need to. Find a place where you know you are welcome in that sanctuary. And if there are any priests or religious listening, please be the one to welcome. Please don't be afraid. If you know, I know that they might not have had a lot of experience with special needs kids of all sizes and varieties, but um, ask the question, how can we serve? What can we do? How can we assist? And um, you'll be surprised at the answer. And it's not as scary as you think it is. So um, I think they're doing better. Uh, have I been failed by my church? Sure. My church is a church of men. Of course, we've been failed by the church, but um, do I hold it against them? No. Um, have they since some of the priests that we've come in contact have come back to us later um, and actually asked forgiveness? And I didn't understand that this was a situation and I didn't know this is what needed to happen. And I'm, I'm sorry, I've learned that now. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. What a great moment of humility. I myself have had to go to par to priests and say, I'm sorry, I judged you for this and, and I didn't, I apologize. Please accept my, my apology. And um, because of our Christian faith, that's what we should be doing. We should be saying, absolutely, I give you my forgiveness. Absolutely forgiven and forgotten and let's move forward. Um, but you just, it's just, I find it to be kind of an individual parish thing. Mm -hmm. um, I see it rising up the ranks to the to the higher levels. Like I said, in our diocese, we just have this new position, which is incredibly exciting to see um, and wonderful. And um, I know in one of our local parishes, they had the, um, with the team, they worked with the Tim Tebow Foundation and had the, the special needs adult prom. I can't remember what it's called, the Night to Shine, I think. And they just did that last weekend. And this was the first time that we had participated in our diocese in this. And it's awesome mm -hmm. recognizing the dignity of these beautiful adults with special needs. It's not just the children, yeah. but they, these kids grow up. And then what happens? Because our, our government is only, you know, they, the school system deals with them till they're 22 mm -hmm. and then they're, then they're out. And then what happens? Right. You know, that's, there's a real crisis there. Um, in, in the community and in the church. So yeah, we have a lot of work to do, but, but we're getting it done very, very slowly, but surely it's, I, I, I'm very hopeful for the future of our church. I love what you said about humility and getting the conversation started, whether it's the priest that needs to do the welcoming or the family that has a special needs child that is trying to start initiatives or someone who does not have any relationship to someone that has special needs that sees that need within the parish to try and get things started. And yes, there will be toes being stepped on. There will be misunderstandings. But that willingness just to start the conversation is a game changer. And I know you talked about those dirty looks that we get in mass. And I have four <laughs> young kids. I'm familiar with the dirty looks. But Jen Fulweiler said something on her show recently, her radio show on Sirius XM, talking about going to mass recently and receiving dirty looks. And she thought that this woman was judging her and her six young children and that they were just feeling out of place. And then that very same woman approached her at the end of mass and told her what a beautiful family she has and how we can warp 
people's looks into just assuming that they have the worst intentions and think horrible things about us when that may not at all be the case. And I'm sure we've all judged others for giving us a look when maybe it had nothing to do with us. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll, yes, I'm raising my hand. You can't see me, but yes, <laughs> first in line. And if you've ever met my husband or seen his face, he's, he's on, on Instagram, he goes by the tag grouchy historian because he only has one facial expression. So you can never judge what he's thinking by his face. Um, and he's one of the most empathetic and kind men I know. So absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's half the battle to start the conversation, mm-hmm. <clears throat> ask the question, seek the help, um, begin something anew. And if, if you're one of those people that doesn't have experience with special needs people, um, and you, you want to enter into that, there's so many places you can go to serve, you know, just look at your local school with the special needs community and start there. Yeah. Or at your parish or with the Knights of Columbus, with the, um, the Marion homes or the Kovar that they do. I mean, there's just, there's so many places to go. There's so many people that need help. What is making Mary Lennenberg happy right now? It can be something big, something small, something silly. What is it? Okay, there there are two things. Okay. First, time with my spouse. Just time the two of us alone. It's like dating all over again, mm-hmm. but better. So I will say in the big thing, time. And and really time with our son, Jonathan, as a family, which gets harder the older they get and the more independent their lives are. So time is, is what's making me happy. But today specifically, I got a brand new box of Tazo cinnamon spice tea. Ooh. And I literally held it in my hand and I'm like, this makes me so happy. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so yeah, I, I look forward to my cinnamon spice tea tonight. That's going to be good. Fantastic. So Mary, before I hang up with you, do you have any projects or upcoming events that you'd like the listeners to know about? Well, I'm I'm headed to Grand Rapids, Michigan in March to speak at the Grand Rapids uh diocese uh, the diocese of grand rapids women's conference so on march 17th um so if anybody's up in the grand rapids michigan area you know come give me a a a hug i'd love to meet you and then i'm in bend oregon uh for their diocesan women's conference in june and um those are the two big ones coming up there's a a lot of other things happening i asked for prayers in my writing i have uh, been approached with a project that um we'll see how that goes (laughs) But it's it's scary to ask a dyslexic to write. And um, and, you know, I do have a blog for 10 years, but I feel like that's a conversation. It's not really writing, writing. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of working with the Lord on that. And, um, you know, I'm available to come to parishes to speak to groups. I speak to anybody and everybody. We, you know, we've been in youth ministry ministry for 10 years now. So we do a bunch of that. But you can find me online at uh, com, and I'm on Instagram. That's where I spend the most of my social media time. I would have to say it would be Instagram and also on Facebook. Just look up my name. Fantastic. Well, Mary, thank you so much for giving so generously of your time. I could talk to you all day long, but before <laughs> I take any more of your time, I better let you go take a nap so you can recuperate from your big weekend with all those high school students. Oh, they all went home to their parents. I'm good. <laughs> 
Well, Mary, God bless you. God bless you and your ministry. I'll be praying for you with your writing projects and these upcoming talks that you're going to be giving. God is doing big things in your life, and I am so grateful for you. So thank you. Thank you. Right back. I'm so excited for you with this new podcast. I binge listened over the um, leading up to the weekend, and ah, sister, you got some gifts. Oh well, thank you, Mary. It's very exciting. I'm I'm so excited for you. I think it's great. Well, it's easy to promote it when I have fun people like you come on. So thank you for being a guest, and I will let you know the moment it drops. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Mary. Have a good evening. Talk to you soon. God bless. Bye. If you would like to find Mary online, you can see her at maryleneberg.com. You can also find her on Instagram. If you're not already following Mary, you need to find her on Instagram. Her and her husband, Jerry, are totally killing Insta stories. They are awesome. (laughs) Mary's also one of the great contributors to Take Up and Read. If you don't already know what they are all about, go ahead and visit takeupandread.org. That's going to do it for this episode of While You Were Folding. As always, please keep sending your questions and feedback to me. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram, or you can email me at podcast at katherineboucher.com. Please keep sharing the show with your friends. We have listeners in 45 states and in 15 different countries, and I am blown away by the number of you who continue to reach out and let me know on a daily basis that you're listening. Philip, I think, is getting a little bit bitter because he has at least one patient every day that has not met me in real life. Tell him, hey, does your wife do that podcast? (laughs) And yeah, he likes to jokingly complain that he's tired of living in my shadow, which is absolutely hysterical because everyone loves Dr. Phil and thinks that he's awesome. I hope you have a wonderful week. Until next time, don't be afraid to begin again and share what you heard while you were folding.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father of mercy, thank you for another week of life. Thank you for the gift of our families. Thank you for the gift of our vocations. And thank you for the gift of Mary Lenneberg's beautiful witness of what it means to be pro-life, to embrace all life, whether it comes to us in the form of a typical child like her son, Jonathan, or in the form of a child that develops profound special needs. Please help us to embrace all of the life around us and our own lives as well, to lift up one another, to not treat one another as a cross, but as a gift given to us by God. And please help us to lift one another up when we are struggling, especially those of us who know someone who is parenting a child who has profound special needs. Because as Mary will speak with us today, there is a real definite need there to lift one another up. And sometimes the need goes unseen. Please encourage those of us who are parenting children with uh, special needs. Help us to be encouraged by today's message that we hear from Mary. And also, please encourage all of us in our vocations, whether we are single, married, or we are religious or a priest. Just lift us up. Help us to be faithful to the call that you put in front of us to be pro-life in the truest sense of the word, to love one another as best we can, and to remember that whatever we do to the least of our brothers, that we're doing it to Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so in editing this wonderful episode about my guest, Mary Lenneberg, and her experience as a mother to a child with profound special needs, I realized that the episode was going to release on March 21st. Now, those of you who uh, maybe are involved in the world of special needs, maybe you already knew this, but uh, March 21st, 321 is also known as World Down Syndrome Day. And if you want to learn about more, learn more about that celebration, you can go to worlddownsyndromeday.org. That is going to be the online home database for anyone who's recording a video or has a special event or wants to somehow spread awareness about Down syndrome, what it is, what it's not and how the world would be a very different place without the beautiful people around us that have Down syndrome. Um, and if you, if you didn't know, Down syndrome is really just the triplication, the tripling of one of our chromosomes, the 21st chromosome. So because of that, they've decided to celebrate Down syndrome on the 21st day of the third month. So I think that's pretty awesome that today, this podcast episode about um, being a mother to a child with special needs came out on Down Syndrome Day because I I planned this podcast months out. (laughs) I had no idea that Mary, her episode was going to be released on this day. So I am just thinking of that as a little wink from God, and I think it's awesome. Um, But this week, rather than give you a little overview of things that are new in our neck of the woods, I thought today I would really quickly 
share a beautiful story about a physician and his interaction with patients that had Down syndrome. You may or may not have heard his story before, but I am his biggest fangirl. So if you do know the story, that's fine. But I think you will learn something new probably. So Dr. Jerome Lejeune, forgive my French, was born in 1926 in France and he died in 1994. And he is important in the world of special needs children and just the world of educating people about special needs in general, because he's considered the father of modern genetics. And he's considered the father of modern genetics because he discovered the cause of Down syndrome in 1958. He found that the 21st chromosome, when it's triplicated, that that causes the link between the chromosomal abnormality and when a person has Down syndrome. And so after performing this research and trying to learn more about Down syndrome, he was starting to see the writing on the wall. And he saw around the world that people were using his scientific advances that he had discovered to try and systematically abort the children who were diagnosed in the womb as having Down syndrome. And so as he continued to advance and was at the pinnacle of his career, he was in a position to receive a very prestigious award. In 1969, he received several honors that year, but this one stood out. It was called the William Allen Memorial Award. And the American Society of Human Genetics bestows this honor, which is considered the highest honor in the field of genetics. And Dr. Lejeune received the William Allen Memorial Award. And in the past, people who received this award would give some sort of a lecture about the scientific field and how their contribution was going to advance the field. But Dr. Lejeune very heroically used this moment, which was very public in the scientific community, to share his pro-life stance and to talk about the importance of protecting life, especially those who are very vulnerable. And he went home and stories have circulated that he told his wife that day that that was the day that he lost the Nobel Prize in medicine because he knew that he would be considered an exile in the scientific field from that day forward for speaking out against the evils of abortion, especially the evil of, of systematically aborting children who are discovered to have Down syndrome in the womb. And he was just devastated by the fact that his discovery, which he thought was going to help propel the world of medicine toward finding a cure for Down syndrome, was instead being used for evil, being used to extinguish life among the innocent. And it was very devastating for him, but it encouraged him to spend the rest of his life to try and find a cure for these innocent children. And in 1994, Pope John Paul II appointed him. He was the first president for the pontifical, oh, now I'm going to mess up the name. It was the pontifical, it 
1974, Pope Paul VI appointed him to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Because he was considered basically a black sheep in the scientific community, he was struggling to um, advance his work within the traditional scope of science, but fortunately, the Catholic Church embraced all of the advances that he was taking on in the world of medicine. And so Pope Paul VI, noticing all of this, invited him to advance his scientific studies through the Catholic Church. And so in 1974, Pope Paul VI appointed him to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And... (coughs) In 1994, he became the first chairman of the Pontifical Academy for Life that was started by Pope John Paul II. And interestingly enough, just 33 days after serving on that committee as the first president, he died of cancer. It was Easter Sunday, April 3rd, 1994. And two years after his death, the Jerome Lejeune Foundation was established to carry on his commitment to research, care, and advocacy for people with genetic intellectual disabilities, not just Down syndrome, but the various genetic intellectual disabilities that he had discovered up until that point. And just a year after the foundation was established in 1997 in Paris, the Jerome Lejeune Foundation developed and opened a hospital. And this hospital is amazing. It is the first specialized medical consultation center in Europe to provide care for thousands of people with Down syndrome, not just children, but adults as well. And they continue the threefold mission of care, work, and advocacy for those with the genetic disorders. And they are hoping, the same Jerome Lejeune Foundation, they're hoping to launch in May of 2020 a Jerome Lejeune Hospital in Washington, D.C. for children and adults with Down syndrome. And what makes these centers special is they have a multidisciplinary team in place to treat the patients that come to them with Down syndrome. The goal is for them to treat the entire person. So not only do they have the occupational therapist, the physical therapist, the pediatrician, the neurosurgeon, etc., but they also have the psychological component being taken care of, the nutrition component being taken care of, all under one roof. Because as those of you who have experience for children with special needs, oftentimes when you have a genetic disorder like Down syndrome, You do not have just one system being affected for that individual with their physical abilities. You also have the cognitive abilities being affected. You have the nutrition being affected by how the body is going to metabolize and process whatever nutrients they're trying to take on. And so it's such a gift for these families to be able to have medical staff that are not only cutting edge and trained with the most recent treatments, but they're able to give the person the dignity they deserve by recognizing that that individual needs not just one area of medicine, but multiple areas. And the physicians and the medical staff are able to not only coordinate care, make sure the medications that they're prescribing are working in unison with everything else that's 
helping to take care of that specific patient, but also helping the family to be better advocates for themselves and be in better communication with the entire medical team that's caring for the individual. So I'm very excited to learn more about the Jerome Lejeune Hospital that they're hoping to open. Again, that's May in 2020. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go to the lejeunefoundation.org website, and I will post the link to that in the show notes. Um, And you also would be encouraged to find out that the Vatican, the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, recognized Jerome Lejeune as a servant of God in 2012. So that means that his cause for canonization was opened back in 2012, and it continues to move forward. And I believe that Jerome Lejeune lived a life of heroic virtue just from the little bit of research that I've done about him. And I continue to pray that there will be a miracle attributed to him so that his cause for canonization can move forward. So please pray for Jerome Lejeune for the success of the foundation as they try to open a hospital, that his prayers to find a cure for Down syndrome can come to fruition so that we can protect the most innocent and vulnerable among us. And I think some of us, especially those of us who know a loved one who has Down syndrome, maybe are a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that Dr. Lejeune focused so intently on finding a cure for Down syndrome because those with Down syndrome have the most beautiful souls. We believe that they're incapable of sinning and therefore they're saints among us. And so why would you want to get rid of that by finding a cure? And Dr. Lejeune's attitude was that because Down syndrome is a disorder of a chromosome, that it is treated as a disease in the medical community. And he's quoted as saying, hate the disease, love the patient. That is the practice of medicine. Another beautiful quote that he said was, again and again, we see this absolute misconception of trying to defeat a disease by eliminating the patient. It's ridiculous to stand beside a patient and solemnly say, who is this upstart who refuses to be cured? How dare he resist our art? Let's get rid of him. Medicine becomes mad science when it attacks the patient instead of fighting the disease. We must always be on the patient's side. Always. End quote. And so it's not so much that he thinks those with Down syndrome are problems in and of themselves. He dedicated his entire life to loving those individuals. And the foundation continues to make sure that those individuals that have Down syndrome and their families know how loved and cared for they are. The Jerome Lejeune Foundation has an advocacy network in place. And the the hospital that's opened in Paris, they have over 1,000 people that attend training at the hospital every year to become better advocates for those with Down syndrome. And so please don't walk away from my imperfect presentation. Think that Dr. Lejeune thought that those with Down syndrome were not worth saving. Quite the contrary. He dedicated his entire life to being the best possible advocate he could be by them because for them because he saw the systematic abortions that were happening. And I have looked at the recent statistics and you may have read them as well. I believe it was in Iceland in recent years. 
and I should have looked this up before I started to record, but I'm pretty sure it was in 2015 in Iceland, they were boasting about having a 100% rate of not having any children with Down syndrome born in their country. And the reason for that, of course, is because of prenatal testing and individuals finding out that they have a child with Down syndrome in the womb and then systematically aborting those children. And so there's a reason for that number. And unfortunately, it's not because the science that Dr. Lejeune was helped to find is being used for a cure. That's not why we have 100% no children being born with Down syndrome. It's because the science, scientific advances that Dr. Lejeune put forth are now allowing so-called doctors to kill these children because they're no longer wanted by their mothers and fathers. So we pray for Dr. Lejeune's soul. We pray for his cause for beatification. We pray for a miracle so that his cause can be moved forward. And I hope that you'll continue to share his story. And I hope that you're doing something special to celebrate World Down Syndrome Day today. If you want to learn more about World Down Syndrome Day, go to worlddownsyndromeday.org and you can find more videos and stories there. And if you want to find out more about Dr. Lejeune and his foundation, visit lejeunefoundation.org. I will have both of those websites in the show notes. Today, I am so honored to share a wonderful conversation that I had recently with Mary Lenneberg. Mary Lenneberg is a writer, speaker, wife, and mother, sharing her witness and testimony about God's redeeming love and being brave in the scared. Mary has served her local parish in many roles, including liturgy coordinator, youth ministry lead, and confirmation preparation instructor. Currently, Mary works at Tepeyac OBGYN, a pro-life medical practice in Northern Virginia. She also travels the country speaking to groups of all ages about God's redeeming love and that faith is the courage to want what God wants for us, even if we cannot see where the path leads. Acceptance plus trust equals unimaginable joy. Mary lives in Northern Virginia with her husband of 29 years and her grown son. She continues to embrace her father's advice. Never quit, never give up, never lose your faith. It's the one reason you walk this earth. For God chose this time and place just for you, so make the most of it. And Mary is doing exactly that. I hope you enjoy our conversation today about what Mary's life looked like as a mother of a child with profound special needs and the mother of a child who is quote unquote typical. We talked about 
how it impacted her motherhood, how that experience impacted and continues to impact her motherhood, how the experience impacts her marriage, and her general thoughts and reflections about how we are doing to best serve and support those around us that have special needs. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here's Mary. Mary. 